Well, first of all, let me introduce myself. My name is Alita. I'm one of the pastors. I'm on the teaching team here. And I have to tell you, um, when Chris gave me this text, Chris is in charge of our teaching team, and he kind of assigns the schedule. And when I read this text for today, um, I had all these feelings kind of rush to the surface, because uh, if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, maybe you're like me, but these, um, these verses used to secretly freak me out a little bit. You know, like, at best, it left me feeling unsettled about my faith. And I think at worst, what it did is it left me insecure in my salvation. I had real thoughts. Like, even as Chris was reading this, there's like this thing inside of me where it's like, ugh, am I going to be that person one day where Jesus is going to look at me and I'm going to say, Lord, Lord, in heaven, and he's going to look at me like I'm a stranger? That's a terrifying thought to me. I don't know about you, but it terrifies me. And I, and I do think that this is the natural tendency, this is the natural line of thought that many of us could have if we, just, um, if we just picked these three verses up out of the Bible and held them up on their own. And whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I do think that the tendency is to look at these verses on their own and go, Ooh, I, guess, I guess nobody really knows. I guess we're all just going to find out one day whether we were a real follower of Jesus or not. Nobody can really know if they're saved. This is why context matters so very much. Paying attention to the way that these verses um, fit into everything that's happening around it. You know that um, a lot of times you hear realtors say location, location, location. A good Bible teacher should always say context, context, context. This is how much it matters. Because Jesus did not mean, he never intended for this small section of his sermon to be lifted out and held up on its own. He never intended for this to be just like a 30-second soundbite to make us all feel really insecure and uncertain. That's not what this was meant to do. And here's why this matters so much, why I'm drilling down on this just right at the beginning. Because as Chris mentioned, Jesus' entire sermon up to this point has been leading us to this place. As a church, we've been studying this. I want to say, I didn't go back and look, but I think it's like five-ish months, maybe since March. We've been really studying it, like just living in this sermon, giving real time in, in our small groups and as a teaching team to just pour over these words of Jesus. And this is why this is important. It's because everything he's been teaching us so far has been leading up to this message today. And in fact, Jesus isn't really, he's not really teaching us anything new here in these verses that we're going to talk about. He's not really teaching us anything new. What he's doing is, in essence, he's pointing back to what he's already taught us, and today he's just challenging us to now live it. And so there's no easy way to say this, so I'm just going to say it. Today's text is probably going to offend some of us, <laughs> because it's, it's, not, um, it's not that it's intellectually hard, it's just that it's got some things that are hard to hear, some things that are a little maybe unpalatable for us. Because Jesus lays before us a reality and a choice. Similar to what, if you remember, if you were here a couple weeks ago, similar to what Jeremy taught about, um, where he taught on this uh, reality that Jesus gives us two roads, a choice between two roads, the wide road and the narrow road. And while Jesus gives us a choice, he also at the same time tells us what the right choice is. Jesus is doing the same thing today. He's going to give us a very hard reality 
and challenge us with a hard choice. Here's the hard reality. The hard reality that we're going to face today is that there's a right way to follow Jesus. It's just, there's just a right way to follow him. And the choice then for us is, will I follow him? Really? Like, not just with my words, but with my life. And I have to tell you that I have been very um, intimidated by today's lesson. Just to be real honest with you. Very intimidated by today's lesson. But here's what I believe. I really do believe God has beautiful, challenging, but really hopeful things to teach us this morning. So let's just pray together before we, um, before we get started. Uh, living God, we come in humility before you, and we ask you, we just, I feel like I can be bold enough to say just on behalf of, of this room that we want you here. You are welcome here. We want to know you. We want you to know us. And so, Spirit of God, I just invite you to speak to us, to be our teacher. You know, Lord, how intimidated I am by this lesson, but, but I just ask you, Lord, would you teach? And I do pray that the words out of this mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be so very pleasing in your sight this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, I want to make three observations about this text today. Three observations. I'll tell all three of them to you right off the top. Here's the first one. Not all who call themselves followers of Jesus are really following Jesus. That sounds fun right off the bat. Number two, Jesus tells us who his real followers are. Number three, we have a decision to make about what kind of follower we're going to be. Okay, so let's start at the beginning of this, and this first point is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Okay, so number one, not all who call themselves followers of Jesus are really following Jesus. Let's just reread the text briefly, beginning Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Okay, so there is an implication here that there are some people who will one day stand before the Lord believing that they have been following him, have even done some like amazing things in his name, but Jesus will look at them and call them evildoers. Okay, so this is the part where a lot of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, we begin to feel like real unsettled. Like, okay, what does this mean? Is Jesus going to look at me and call me an evildoer? Well, maybe. <laughs> Let's dig into this. Let's find out what he means. And again, this is not meant to be unsettling. This is meant to actually be really hopeful. I think that the King James version of um, this particular portion of text really gets the intention of Jesus's words better. In the King James version, rather than saying, away from me, you evildoers, it's, ac it's actually um, more accurately translated this way. Jesus says, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. 
ye that work iniquity. So in other words, Jesus is not saying, hey, just get away from me, you bad people. He's not calling them a name. It's much more he's identifying a behavior. He's identifying that there are those who are professing Jesus as Lord while simultaneously living a life that is working iniquity. There are those who are literally doing evil while at the same time calling Jesus Lord. And this expression of um, working iniquity or, or evildoers, it comes from two Greek words that are really important for us to, to understand. The first word is a word that means I perform, I do, or I practice. I perform, I do, or I practice. And the second word is the word anomia. It's a word that means iniquity, lawlessness, disobedience, or sin. And it could literally be defined this way. It is an utter disregard for God's law. Okay, I know that was kind of a lot. So here's what happens when we put those two um, definitions together. We put all of that together, and here's what it literally means. I practice disobedience. I practice sin. I practice an utter disregard for God's law. That's what working iniquity means. That's what Jesus is getting at. Okay, so here's how this all breaks down. Jesus is saying that one day there will be people who stand before him, who have lived a life of sin, practice a regular life of disobedience, a life of utter disregard for God's law, but have done it while calling themselves followers of Jesus. To say it another way, Jesus is confronting those who call him Lord with their mouths, but do not live it out with their lives. So let's just pause and consider for a moment, like even just culturally, I think all of us can appreciate that we don't like hypocrisy. We don't like hypocrisy. None of us appreciate double-sidedness, whether it's in government leaders or spiritual leaders or thought leaders, whether they're Christians or not, none of us like it. And not only do we not like it, um, this kind of hypocrisy is actually damaging to people. And so Jesus is right to call it out, to call it what it is, saying this is like a hypocritical kind of behavior. And I just want to tell you that um, God's disgust with this kind of false following isn't a new thing. This isn't the first time it shows up in Scripture. In fact, if we rewind the Old Testament, we would see that it is full of warnings, full of warnings, because um, Israel, which was God's chosen people, they were doing this regularly. They were regularly rejecting God while at the same time saying, but I follow him claiming him as their God, but not living for him. And so Jesus calling out hypocritical disciples is just a continuation of what God has been doing for a very long time with his people. I want to give you a few examples just so you can see the precedence that we have for this in the Bible. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Hosea 8, chapter, so, sorry, Hosea chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, Israel cries out to me, our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good. Ezekiel 33, verse 21, my people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Like, I just want you to see that this isn't a new thing that Jesus is doing. This is just like a continuation of something that God has always been calling out of his people, saying, look, this double-sidedness, this kind of hypocrisy has never, nor will it ever be okay. 
The Israelites used their mouths to acknowledge God, but their lives told an entirely different story. And that is what Jesus is calling out here in Matthew 7. He's addressing a hypocritical claim of relation to God. In fact, if we look back at the text in verses 21 and 22, we'll see that these um, false followers, these hypocritical people, are basing their salvation on what they say to God and what they say about God. What they say to the Lord and about him. So in verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And then in verse 22, many will say to me on that day, like essentially, I talked a whole lot about you. In other words, they're basing their salvation on what they say to him and about him. And Jesus is saying, he is not going to recognize us simply by what we say to him or what we say about him, but whether or not we have lived out what we say to him and about him. Now, just a little caveat. Obviously, I hope it's obvious. If it's not, I'm going to say it. We do need to profess Jesus with our lips, with our words. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says this, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Okay, so we do need to use our lips to confess him as Lord. The point Jesus is making here, and I'm just, I know I'm drilling it down, but that's not enough. Not alone, not our lips alone. It is with our lips and our lives. It's both. Jesus says that these false followers use their lips. In fact, and this is where it gets even more uncomfortable, not only do they use their mouths, but they also actually do some actual things in Jesus' name. Jesus uses, um, scholars say he uses three pretty extreme examples. The the first one was, if you noticed it in the text, in verse 22, Jesus says that they prophesied in his name. They drove out demons in his name. They performed miracles in Jesus' name. Like, these are not small little things, right? These are some pretty amazing things. Like, I'm not sure the last time you drove a demon out of somebody, but it's like, right? You're like, let's say Sunday. How many days ago was that now? Maybe some of you have this week, and I'm not, it's, it, that happens, I'm just saying, maybe for most of us, not like an everyday occurrence or a regular thing. But this is exactly the point Jesus is making, is that um, false disciples have done some pretty spectacular, amazing, and wild things in Jesus' name. And these people on Judgment Day will stress the fact to him, but Lord, I did it in your name, in your name. Now, here's what's interesting about this. If we, again, if we look through the Bible, we go to the Old Testament and the New Testament, which again, this is why whenever we get to this kind of stuff, it's so important to have a handle on the full breadth of scripture. Um, I just promise if you get in your Bible, it will get in you. Um, But if we look through the Bible, through both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we will see this overarching truth, um, which shows over and over again, there's so many examples we can name, I'm only going to name two, but that God can and does use people who use their lips to honor him, but are living in rebellion against him. He does this with a lot of, a lot of people. Again, I'm only going to show you one example from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, because I just want us to see how this plays out in the Bible. First example is um, in the Old Testament. It's 1 Samuel 19, and it is King Saul. 
King Saul. So um, if you're familiar with the story, King Saul is um, the first king over Israel, and there's a guy named David who's come along, and it, for a lot of reasons, Saul is jealous of David. And so Saul is trying to kill David. David has gone, or sorry, Saul has gone off the rails. He is not following the Lord anymore. He's jealous. He's insecure. He's threatened. And so he sends his men to go capture David so he can bring him back and kill him. So his men go there. When his men get there, the Spirit of God, this is so wild, the Spirit of God comes on the men, on the soldiers. Rather than capturing David, they all just start prophesying, just as they start walking around prophesying. So Saul finds out, and he's like, ugh, he sends more men. Happens again. And the second group of guys, they go to capture David, and they just start, the Spirit of God comes on them, and they just start prophesying. Third time, happens again. Saul sends guys. These guys show up. The Spirit of God comes on them. They start prophesying. By the third time, Saul's like, hey, you know what? It's my job now. I'm going to go handle this thing. Saul shows up, 1 Samuel 19, 23. I love this. It says, so Saul went, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying. I love that the Bible says it that way. He just walked along prophesying. Like, here's the guy who has murder in his heart, and the Spirit of God comes on him. He was living in rebellion to the living God, and God filled him up with the Spirit and used him to prophesy. Like, wild. I don't understand it. But I know that God can use whoever he wants to use. That was the Old Testament example. New Testament example, John chapter 11, there's a guy named Caiaphas. I'm going to read to you John 11, 49 through 52. It says this, Caiaphas was the Jewish high priest at the time Jesus was alive. As high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. That's a good prophecy. It was an accurate prophecy, and it sounds all good and well, except if you know the story of Scripture and you know who Caiaphas is, this is a little bit wild, because Caiaphas was one of the primary people who was plotting to kill Jesus. In fact, he was the one who was hosting me. He was like having open houses for people to come on in and be like, let's plot and scheme together on how we can secretly kill Jesus. You read about that in Matthew 26. He's also the one who later on in the story actually stands in front of Jesus. If you've ever seen any kind of um, movie around the passion narrative, you might remember the scene where he's the guy who, who, when they bring Jesus in, he's been arrested. He stands there, and this is the guy who like demands, tell us whether or not you're the Messiah. And when Jesus says that he admits that he is, Caiaphas is the guy who famously like tears his robes and you know yells out, blasphemy. That's Caiaphas, okay? Caiaphas then sends Jesus off to Pilate to get crucified. It's wild that God used this guy to prophesy about Jesus. God can use anyone he wants to use. I don't understand it. I don't pretend to understand it, but he does. Later on, the Apostle Paul makes a really interesting observation um, in a letter, and it says this, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Such an interesting um, observation that he makes. Now, this idea of people who aren't authentically following God being used by God bothers some of us. It bothers me, (laughs) if I can just be honest. But as I've said a couple times, the reality I have learned a long time ago, and if you live long enough, you begin to see it, God really can use whoever he wants to use. 
And I've experienced it firsthand in my own life. Some of you know my story when um, I've shared it here at the church a while back, but when I, I lived for about four years in just a total rebellion to God. And during that time, I was still, I was a teenager, um, but God still used me. Like, I don't know why, but he did. I was leading worship at things. Um, I did used to do worship every now and again. You will never, ever hear me. I found my lane. That is not it, is what I'm saying. Did you hear Katie this morning? I'm not ever singing in this church. Um, But I was leading worship at things, and I really didn't have any right to do it because I knew how I was actually living my life, and it was in rebellion to God. But he still used me. Like, I remember praying for people and seeing people healed. Like, what? Why? Only the Lord and I at that point knew the depth of my rebellion. And I am a very good example standing before you of somebody who was saying and even occasionally doing all of the right things in Jesus' name. But in the deep places of my heart, both God and I knew that I was not really following him. Not really. I would definitely throw his name into things to win the favor of people and to leverage situations, but I would live my life as my own God. I wasn't submitting to his authority on any level, and I certainly wasn't obeying him. I really did um, pick him up when it was convenient, and I would lay him down when it was inconvenient to me. I'm not saying it was right of me, and I'm certainly not suggesting that this is how we ought to live our lives. In fact, I want to suggest to you that although, we, um, although God can minister through people who are not really following him, his obvious preference is for us to actually follow him. That's what he wants. And that's what his entire bit of teaching here is really about. He is warning us away from living our lives this way, warning us away from living our lives as false followers. He's warning us away from this outcome because he tells us what can happen when we live this way. We'll stand before him and we'll say, I didn't really know you. We're going to talk about that line more in a minute, but it's a sobering thought. I never really knew you. John Stott um, says this. He says, the reason for their rejection by him is that their profession, this is talking about the false followers, their profession was verbal and not moral. It concerned their lips only and not their life. They called Jesus Lord, Lord, but never submitted to his lordship or obeyed the will of his heavenly father. Here's some good news. I believe that Jesus is warning here is also meant to be an invitation for us, an invitation to follow him the right way. Because we who, if if you claim to be a Christian, you've probably done some things, some good things. Um, With your mouth, maybe you've claimed faith in Jesus. Maybe you've even gotten baptized. Maybe you come to church regularly. Maybe you do call him Lord, Lord. Maybe you go to church, or sorry, maybe you go to small group. Awesome. Maybe you even do some ministry in his name. Here's what I want to pitch out to you, though is that Jesus isn't impressed by our words. He's not even impressed by the outward things we do. He's, what he wants is our hearts, the places inside of you that only you and him know. We can say and do a lot of things, but how, what's going on inside of us, internally, in the place that, between you and him alone, that part inside of you that only he has access to, He wants us to choose him. 
And I don't know what kind of a theology that you've been pitched over the years, but here's what being a Christian isn't. It isn't making a choice one day and then just going on and living our lives as if it's the same. Being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus means choosing Jesus again and again and again and again. It's not a one and done deal. Now, don't misunderstand me, please. I'm not calling into question salvation. I'm calling into question a theology that would tell us that we can make a choice with our lips but not live it out with our lives. I'm calling into question a faith that would tell us that we can use the name of Jesus but not honor the name of Jesus. I'm calling into question a generation, maybe our generation, that would say, Lord, I will worship you with my lips, but I'm just not going to do it with my life. And this is where I'm convinced that this is, this is what Jesus is talking about here. Like, I never, I never knew you away from me because you're, you're doing evil. And we just, we just cannot have it both ways. We've got to make a choice at some point. Like, will we follow him? Really, really follow him? Or won't we? And so Jesus warns us while simultaneously inviting us at the same time. So that was the first observation. Not all who call themselves followers of Jesus are really following Jesus. That leads us to the second observation, which I'm so grateful for, is that Jesus tells us who his real followers are. And I'm so happy that he tells us. His real follower, verse 21, it says, his real followers are the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so what is his Father's will then? That's the question I want to ask. If we rewind to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we find out that Jesus has been leading, as I said at the beginning of our time together, Jesus has been leading us here to this very moment. He has been for the entire sermon telling us exactly what a true disciple is. He has been teaching us how a follower of the living God is to live and to function and to treat people. He's been teaching us how a follower of the living God follows the living God. If we went back, we don't have time to do this today to exhaust this, but if we went back to the beginning of Matthew 5, if you remember, if you've been tracking along with us for five months, it starts at the Beatitudes. That's where he begins teaching us. And if we went on through chapter 5 and on through chapter 6 and chapter 7, Jesus has spent all of this time telling us exactly what a follower of Jesus looks like. I'm just going to name a few things just to, to hopefully jar your memories a little. He, uh, following Jesus looks like being a peacemaker. It's not harboring anger against other people, but pursuing reconciliation with friends and enemies alike. It's keeping our word to God and to others. It's loving our enemies. It's giving to the needy regularly. It's not being hypocrites. It's being faithful even when nobody's watching. It's entering the narrow gate when the wide road looks pretty inviting. Like, again, not an exhaustive list. That's just kind of some bullet points of some of the things we've studied over the last five months. If you've forgotten or you weren't here, definitely go back and listen. But the point I'm trying to make here is that Jesus has been teaching us all along what it looks like to follow him. And this picture that Jesus has been painting for us this whole time that we've been studying it isn't meant to be um, a crushing burden for us, an unrealistic standard that we could never attain to. Jesus certainly isn't suggesting to us, listen, you had better live out this whole thing, this whole sermon perfectly, or else one day... <laughs> I might not know you. Ooh, like, that's not what's happening here. 
In fact, it's more helpful, I think, um, to look at the Sermon on the Mount. This is just my, the way I, I, I picture it. You can put it in pencil if you want and not pen. But just to think of this like a handbook for what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's like what we aim for. We're not always going to nail it. But it's the long obedience, the long obedience in the same direction. It's a plumb line to come back to again and again and again when we get off course. And when we get off course from following him, we return here um, to the whole Bible. Great. But if you like the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to start to find out or to remember again what it means to be in discipleship to Jesus. I was reading um, a study by Beth Moore this week, and she had this great line. She said, the danger in going barely off course is that over time, it eventually becomes severely off course. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, yeah, you know what? Like, barely off course doesn't feel off course at first. But then what happens is that when we get to that point where we are actually severely off, what happens is that we essentially begin living out our own version of the gospel that looks nothing like the real gospel, but we think we're following Jesus, but really we're just following ourselves or our culture or our friends or some watered down version of following Jesus. And so if we ever wonder what it means to follow him, if we get off course, whether it's just barely or maybe it's severely, we return here. We, we can return to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we remember again, oh, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I also just want to point out to us, um, and Jared talked about this a little last week, that Jesus isn't trying to hide anything from us. He's not trying to be sneaky. He's not trying to hide from us what a true disciple is. He wants us to know it's not supposed to be a tricky thing. He's not going to be like, you know, I, you know, when we get to heaven, he's not going to be like, man, some of you guys are going to be so surprised because you thought you were following me and you weren't. And ha, 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 ha. Like that's, that's not how God is. He's not this evil head in the sky just trying to trick us all. That's not who he is. Um, I'm going to use a illustration right now that got voted down in my house. Um, but you know what? I'm going to use that. And I'll tell you why, because it's about the new Thor movie, and some of you haven't seen it. And my kids are, my boys, not my daughter, my boys are big Marvel fans. They were like, Mom, you cannot do a spoiler alert. I'm not doing a spoiler alert, okay? I promise, if you're a Marvel fan. But there is this scene in the movie where there's a guy who's been um, following a god, little g, god. It's a Thor movie, right? God. And he finally gets to meet this God that he's been serving for his life. And this God laughs in his face. And, is, and he, he laughs. He's like, huh, you gave up everything. Pfft, sorry to disappoint you. But it was all for nothing. Now, I just need you to know I had a moment right there in the movie theater. My kids were, my boys were around me. And I was like, oh. <laughs> it was actually a really tender moment for me. And I'll tell you why. Because I sat there with such a great relief knowing that that is not how it's going to be for us. That this is not some colossal trick for all of us. That this is not an option. One day, all of us will stand before the Lord, and it will be you, and it will be him. Nobody else. And he's not going to look at us, and he's not going to laugh like he's just pulled off the greatest cosmic scheme there ever was. He's going to call us to account for the way that we've lived. Not the way our neighbor has lived, not the way our friends have lived, not the way our spouse has lived, not even the way our kids have lived. And I really believe maybe some of you parents need to hear that today. 
He will hold you to account for the way that you have lived your life. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now listen, talking about a coming day of judgment is not super fun. But I will say this, and I'm going to say it unapologetically. I do believe we do ourselves a disservice if we ignore what Scripture has to say about this day. If we just gloss over it and pretend like it isn't in the Bible. Because while it may not be a culturally popular topic, even within the church, it is a soul imperative topic. And these verses in Matthew 7, just, just another note to make here um, that we're studying today, are they're specifically addressing those of us who do identify ourselves as followers of Jesus. He's deciphering between those who are really following him and those who think they are but actually aren't. And it's these ones, these false followers, to whom he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. The word know in uh, the Greek is a word that means to know, especially through a personal experience. It's like a, a firsthand acquaintance. It's to experientially know somebody. It's different than like head knowledge, to know about something. It's to know through experience. It's like an intimate knowledge. So when Jesus says, I never knew you, in my mind, part of it's like, well, I mean, of course he knows us. Of course he knows us. He made us. We're all his kids. He knows us. But here's the real indictment against us. It's, did we let him know us? Um, I think of this like a marriage relationship. My husband's name is Ryan. We have been married almost 20 years, um, which sounds like a real long time. It is a real long time, and it's been great. I've loved it. But I can talk about Ryan all day long. I could tell you guys all about him. I can even talk to him every now and again, right? But here's where the real gold in our marriage is. This is like where it gets really good, is that we have an ongoing, firsthand, personal relationship with one another. Like we talk every day, multiple times a day. We text one another. We send each other pictures. We go on dates every week. We, we laugh together. We cry together. Like he's my best friend. He's my favorite person. He's not just somebody that I talk about or that I even like to talk about. He's my person. Like I, I, can't, I can't imagine life without him. He's my person. That's how I think that this works out when we think of um, um, the way that Jesus is describing knowing somebody. It's an ongoing relationship. I think, I don't know about you, but I think it would be weird or maybe, maybe I'd even be borderline offended if somebody that I didn't really know claimed to have like a really close relationship with me. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It's like you go out for coffee with somebody once and then you find out later that they're telling people that y'all are best friends or you're really close and you're like, well, I mean... Like, yeah, I know them, but I don't know, know them, you know? Like, I, I know them, but they don't know me. Like, they don't, they don't know all of me. We talked for an hour, and it was awesome, and we'll probably be friends, but they don't know me. There's a difference. And I think that this is the picture that we're being given. He wants us, just follow me here for a second. He wants us to let him know us. He wants to be invited into our lives. He doesn't just want a casual relationship with us. So when he says, I never knew you to these people, it's because these people in Matthew 7, 
these false followers. They're claiming that they have a, a level of intimacy with Jesus Christ, but there just wasn't any. Some commentators that I read said, it's as if Jesus is saying to them, our relationship isn't broken off because there was never any relationship to begin with in the first place. And so by telling them, depart from me, Jesus is simply making a reality of a choice that was already made by them. His real followers, the ones that Jesus would call his real followers, are the ones who have been in an ongoing, intimate relationship with him, a committed, obedient relationship. They're the kind of followers that we have just spent months now studying about. So, to recap, the first two observations. Number one, not all who call themselves followers of Jesus are really following Jesus. Number two, Jesus tells us who his real followers are, and this has all been leading us to this, our third observation, and it's that we have a decision to make about what kind of follower we're going to be. James, you can go ahead and come on up. Um, this is some hard teaching. It was for me. It was hard teaching for me. Because I think it forces us to ask ourselves some hard questions. These hard questions have been just bouncing around in my head all week. Am I following Jesus? Really following him? Am I living out what I say with my lips? But as I said at the beginning of our time together, it's also so beautiful. Because Jesus is warning us, like with love and care, he's warning us, like he doesn't want us to be this person, he doesn't want us to be a fake follower. He was inviting us to really follow him. But because he's good and he only goes where he's wanted, he gives us a choice. He's giving us a choice while at the same time telling us what the right choice is. And so, as I said at the beginning, the choice before us is this. Will we follow him? Will you follow him? Not just with our words, but with our lives. And not just right now in a moment, but this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, next week, in a year, in five years, in 20 years. Will we choose the long obedience in the same direction? Will we keep choosing him? And I just want to say to you, I think that following Jesus is a thousand, maybe a million decisions to say yes to him over the course of our lifetime. When we're faced with the things that would pull us in the opposite direction to go, mm, but Jesus, you're better. And I choose you again. When the things that we really want to do, when that wide road looks, oh, so inviting and so fun. And that's where our community seems to be going. We go, ah, oh, but Jesus, again, I choose you, and you're better, and I will follow you. I will follow you. I want you to know that the living God who made us all, every one of us, loves you, and he wants you, and he wants to be wanted by you.